0: Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 42, Sir John Moore, Hero of the Battle of Karuna. Before we begin, I'd like to remind all our listeners that if they'd like to enjoy bonus content of our podcast, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Generals and Napoleon. As always, we appreciate your support. Now, on with the show. We have a special guest on for, is this our third time or fourth time, Marcus
1: Gribb. I've lost track myself. Is it my third? I think it's our fourth time. Fourth. Fourth. We did Wellington as well. Fourth yeah, former four right. of the generals. Thank you so much for having me back as well.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, we've covered Wellington, Hill, Crawford, and who are we talking about today?
1: We are talking about Sir John Moore. Hmm. Fascinating character, isn't he? He's really fascinating and has a few like little marmites and bits about him, a few little love and hates, and there's some controversies thrown in as well for good measure.
0: Yeah, and uh, sadly cut down before his time, but we'll get into that. Uh, we will. So before we jump in, I do want to talk about a couple of things for our listeners. Uh, one, first and most important, because it's coming up the earliest, In June 2023, Marcus is giving a free tour of the Waterloo battlefield in Belgium. So if you want to go uh, check out the details on dukeofwellington.org. The other two things, Marcus, I'll let you talk about briefly.
1: Thank you, yes, that one, uh, free tickets, and I think it's about half has gone already. Uh, the next two uh, I want to talk about is I'm giving a tour of Portugal and Spain, including sites, of Vimero, Battle of Porto, Soudan Rodrigo, Badahoff, Combat on the Co, and a few others in September. Uh, that's also on dukeofwellington.org, and a few other sites. I'm giving that along with uh, my friend, Dan Hill, who's a battlefield guide and historian. Uh, it's at a reasonable price set hopefully for everybody and over seven days we're visiting a lot of sites it's about the history
0: yeah indeed and then um last but not least we have the napoleon and revolutionary war graves charity correct
1: Correct. Thank you. Yeah, I know you're uh, kind enough to be a member. Yep. And I'm one of the uh, one of the many trustees. And uh, we've got a team supporting us uh, who volunteer their time. And uh, yes, uh, people from the American Revolution until the end of Waterloo, uh, veterans and uh, serving personnel from all branches of any armed forces, uh, we want to honour their memory by uh, conserving their graves and uh, doing some research into them as well. But uh, primarily, come across um, trying to look after their graves and memorial stones um, funerary monuments directly uh, about them and uh, you know we are, i'm going to be unashamedly we are fundraising uh right now uh we've we're making money but we're now actually doing projects to do restorations so please yep. do check out the nrwgc please join us as a member if you can and as people might have seen on social media recently we've now got some very nice
0: ties i saw that the necktie <laughs> i want i need to get one of those please do buy yeah. one yes they're really smart Okay. Well, let's dive into our protagonist for today. Uh, John Moore was born in 1761 November in Glasgow, the son of a doctor and writer. Um, What do we know about his early life?
1: So this is uh, at least the second Scots that we're covering. Um, he he was the eldest son. Uh, he did have some older brothers and sisters. Apart from one sister, they, uh, they, they died sadly young, which was uh, all too common back then, uh, and had uh, several younger brothers. Uh, he grew up in uh, in glasgow and apparently did speak with a thick Glasgow region accent Mm -hmm. uh, and traveled quite a lot uh, with his father who was uh, a doctor through his father's um, work he ended up getting some very good uh, connections uh, including the uh, future uh, eighth duke of hamilton uh, which is a very uh, established scottish family Mm -hmm. who his father uh, kind of stepped in the the personal physician uh, had to go back to look after the family leaving uh, the eighth Duke alone when he was unwell. And so, through that, Dr. Moore, uh, Sir John Moore's uh, father, steps in and looks after him. And they end up sending, uh, end up traveling with him and Sir John Moore actually going off round Europe, what they used to call the Grand Tour yeah uh, that's where you visit all the the sites of antiquity uh, especially italy and france and, mm-hmm. and start to kind of get a bit of an education hands-on
0: yeah i thought that was very interesting like um and you know throughout his youth he's traveling throughout europe and just learning about different cultures
1: he does uh he doesn't just uh travel they uh, they stay in geneva uh for two years they go to uh, paris and then on to geneva uh, he's there for two years and some of the uh, parts there he apparently before that like, he had terrible handwriting uh his yeah. father has like draw lines on paper in school. You you still get line notebooks. They didn't have that. So um, he improved his handwriting and studied Latin and French uh, to such a level that he was actually uh, not only speaking French, but was writing his letters home to his uh, mama as he wrote to her uh, in in fluent French as well. So really improved his uh, education. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. Um, Yeah, I think just learning not only the cultures and the languages when you're later on commanding multinational forces, that probably helps out.
1: It, it really does. And he, he has a hell of an adventure, actually. He gets wounded by. Um, so this is the future Duke who then becomes the eighth Duke of Hamilton. He gets wounded by him in a mock duel, he kind of get stabbed in the side. <laughs> uh, they go on to tour German courts where he's offered not once, but twice by German aristocrats uh, to join uh, them as uh, Hussar officers, including by the Princess of Brunswick. Mm -hmm. He does Vienna, Rome, Naples and Pompeii, Mm -hmm. and then he climbs Mount Vesuvius and it starts erupting on him and he has to run away from the lava.
0: (laughs) That's a wild uh, upbringing uh, of adolescence there. That's crazy. Yes, we've
1: already got the makings of quite a good adventure novel.
0: Yeah, no, already he's lived quite a life. Um, And then to top it all off, he enlisted in the army in 1776 in the 51st foot and sees action as a lieutenant on the other side of the world at the American Revolutionary War.
1: On the other side of the world. And what I didn't realize until kind of diving down into this uh, recording uh, is when it was actually he – he heard uh, that he was going to get his commission when he was in Naples, but he was only 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And they would recently changed it that he couldn't be under 15. So his father changed his declarations, declaring him as 16, <laughs> even though he was actually joining the army at 14. So he was an incredibly young boy, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: but like you said,
1: he's commissioned as
0: a lieutenant, and um, in a foreshadowing event, uh, Moore receives distinction for his efforts in a campaign in what is common-day Maine, the state of Maine, right. where a small British force holds off a much larger American army until help arrives. Yeah, I wonder, yeah. I, I wonder what skills he learns while he's an American
1: yeah uh, most of the time he seems to actually have a very good social life uh, he's writing letters home commenting on the the mess uh, where they're living there with married officers single officers having balls uh, you know parties uh, mm. but then this uh, this main expedition is both naval and land forces mm. and the the american forces come in and i think he's commands effectively a company and uh, holds off the initial american advance when they land yeah. uh, for a bit of time uh, there kind of Buying, buying time, fighting them back, and then uh, retreating back. With, well, we don't say retreat; we say withdrawing in the British army, uh, <laughs> Withdrawing back to his main troops. Uh, so there's there's an element there, of, you know, quite hands on uh, and fighting as as a young man.
0: Yeah. Well, after the eventual British withdrawal uh, in 1783, uh, when you know Britain and Fran- uh, Britain and America have the peace agreement, he goes back to. Britain in 1784 and is elected Parliament again. A very young person. Mm. Can you talk to us about the members of the army also serving in Parliament at the time? It seems very fairly common in this era.
1: Yeah, it seems strange, doesn't it? But it is actually quite common. Uh, parliament. Uh, this, this is the House of Commons. So for uh international audience uh, we have two houses in our parliament so we have the house of commons and the house of lords right uh, at this time now you see everyone in the house of commons when we talk about parliament we tend to actually mean the house of commons as uh, mps uh, actually then a lot of the business was done in the house of lords the hereditary mm-hmm. office uh, so that um, you know, kind of meant often the prime minister was be coming from there and courtless in his cabinet from there and across the House of Commons that meant that a lot of people could be elected to Parliament and actually only need to be there really quite part-time. Right. It also advances their status. If you think you're going somewhere, uh, let's talk about one of the balls today, it'd be the golf club for example, right. uh, you go and who's going to be the most important person in the room? Well it's the politician. Right. If you're a politician and an army officer, People are going to want to talk to you. And let's not forget that the army uh, is going to be choosing people at horse guards, at its headquarters to lead expeditions, lead forces and, you know, become those generals in position. It's going to do it quite a lot on favoritism or actually just seeing somebody's name on a list and you recognize that. So it's quite a wise move, actually, to become a, a member of parliament at this time. Yeah.
0: And in some cases like Wellington, you, you work away all the way up to prime minister.
1: Right, I mean, yeah, he does. And Wellington was prime minister in for the member of parliament. Sorry, he was a member of parliament in Ireland, and then becomes prime minister in Britain for complicated reasons. So yeah, it's 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 quite common, and I've I've heard of quite junior officers doing it, and uh, quite senior as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he does it at this time. He um, he kind of takes advice from his his old friend, uh, uh, the Duke of Hamilton, and uh, gets elected. Uh, less said about uh, British elections at the time, and Ross and uh, please PC. Please see an episode of Blackadder <laughs> uh, for that, really. Um, but it was it was very, it was very uh, nepotism and quite corrupt. Okay. But uh, yeah, he does that and he becomes a major uh, briefly in uh, the 60th, the Royal American Regiment.
0: Yeah, I, I see that. Yeah, he either receives a promotion or purchases a promotion major and is assigned signed to the Mediterranean Theatre and is involved and wounded in the invasion of Corsica, which is Napoleon's home island. Yes. Uh, do, do we know a lot about that invasion? I know Pasquale Paoli was there
1: as governor. Yeah, I was going yeah. to mention Paoli. Yes, uh, one one of um, kind of Napoleon's mentors, idols, can, yep. we, can we say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he becomes he's quite a major figure in uh, young uh, Napoleon's life. But this is where Corsica's uh, coming out of being uh, part of uh, Genoa, mm-hmm. uh, their old empire, and so it's the beginning of the Revolutionary Wars. Mm. And uh, it's, it's French, and it's got an uprising for the Corsican people who they no longer see themselves as Genoese or French, they're seeing themselves as Corsicans. And because of where it is in the Mediterranean, and you know, Britain is a major naval power, it's really important uh, for its naval anchorages. You know, from Corsica, we can attack France, we can support places like Malta, we can get across down to Egypt and the trading yeah. routes. So it's really, really? important.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's pretty much Corsica is halfway to about everywhere in the Mediterranean. Mm. So, yeah, it's a very important
1: island to to control. It's a really important island. Uh, It goes over there in uh, the summer of 1794 with a British uh, army, uh, Corsican forces and Royal Navy. uh, And they start against the French garrison. And this is really early in the Revolutionary Wars. And they start to take uh, the northern uh, Corsican towns with amphibious landings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really difficult terrain. Uh, yeah. The Cors- Corsican countryside is really mountainous, dry shrubs, you know, mm-hmm. kind of tough uh, plants that have covered in spikes, and uh, yeah, incredibly mountainous. So they're they're fighting up through there, and that's actually really difficult going. Yeah. But the eventual victory uh, was enough for the Corsican people and apparently to then uh, pledge allegiance to Britain and yeah. bring over more reinforcements. Uh, yeah. there so it becomes the eventual British and of course victory against the uh, the French who yeah. finally surrender the uh the kind of the autumn of 1794.
0: Yeah and then he's promoted again to colonel and again is reassigned to the other side of the world uh the West Indies this time under Sir Ralph Abercrombie and it just seems to me that he's getting a worldly education both growing up and in the military and I know what we kind of talked about we're going to talk about this later do you think this diversity helps him to become an efficient trainer of soldiers from around the globe?
1: I think it is giving him a really diverse background. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sir I found who he goes on uh, to uh, things like the Egyptian campaign Uh, and the West Indies itself, it's worth noting was thought of as being a bit of a death sentence, you know, soldiers would do everything they can really to get out of it. Certain soldiers actually refused to board ships if they thought they were going to West Indies. They were near right. mutinies, uh, especially with uh, one of the early uh, Scottish regiments. But um, he went he went over there, and you know he would have seen quite diverse units. Sadly, uh, they had huge casualty rates through uh, disease, mm-hmm. things like yellow fever and malaria. Yep. Uh, and so they were assisted with locally raised troops as well. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a real mix there of professional troops, kind of troops that really do not want to be there and also the locally raised units and that is going to give him uh, diversity and when you think of the working already with Corsica and irregular troops and uh, the forces that would have gone over uh, in, into Corsica and also the background that he's had in the American Revolution, War of Independence, uh, you know, there, he's been made aware of the differences that were there if not working directly alongside those famous units like the, the Rangers, the Loyalist units uh, from that conference. Right. So he's already in quite a short career. i uh, got that wide, you know, like you said, worldly view. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he helps the British recapture the island of St. Lucia from the French. And Abercrombie mm-hmm. must have had a lot of faith in this young man because he left him in charge of the garrison there.
1: Yeah, he does. Uh, he gets promoted up. And uh, kind of left in charge uh, until he himself gets uh, yellow fever and he has to come back.
0: Yeah. And then 1798, he makes it big time. He's promoted major general mm-hmm. and again gets dispatched, this time to suppress the Irish Rebellion of 1798. Uh, how did he perform there? Yeah,
1: 1798 is one of the big rebellions in the Irish uprising history.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What's quite interesting here is the main kind of thing you find about uh, Sir John Moore in island is he's been told he's not as bad as compared to general lake um so general <laughs> lake's kind of going in and being incredibly heavy-handed you know it's murdering it's kind of summer executions uh, this is this is not our finest hour against uh, the the people of islands uh, mm-hmm. in, in all the troubles that have gone on uh, without unpicking that too deeply but um yeah he's thought of as kind of he arrives early before lake at certain towns And uh, they basically surrendered to him. Quite thankful. It's it's more and not lake. So that's that's um, a backhanded compliment. But at least it's better than something.
0: Yeah, better than lake. Uh, When did he (laughs) did he get the title sir? Though, did has that come up yet, or is that
1: later on? That comes up uh, later later okay so yeah.
0: Uh, yeah but it's just it's just it rolls off the tongue sir john moore
1: sir john moore yes it, it is it's difficult with this era with uh people changing titles you know wellesley to wellington uh paget to Oxbridge. there's quite a few so yeah obviously he, he was not born Sir john moore he didn't uh he didn't come from his nobility
0: okay well let's jump ahead to 1803 uh, where he's given command of a brigade and i think one of the most critical things that he gets credit for, or some credit for, is he establishes a system of drill and maneuvering. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about these doctrines?
1: Yes, so this is, uh, he's sent to the south coast of England, uh, not far from where I'm sat now. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's initially uh, helping out with building the Royal Military Canal, uh, which links up like Hythe and uh, the, the real south coast of England, and I, I walked it last week. It's fascinating, <laughs> uh, and there's a there's a lot there's a lot to see there. I'll give them a really good shout out for all the yeah. plaques and uh, statues they've made. Uh, really, really uh, good Napoleonic history just in the middle of the countryside. I really enjoyed that. Okay. And uh, whilst he's there, some of the troops garrisons are put under his uh, brigade, and uh, he's got the chance to do some military engineering alongside some military training and uh, the Sean Cliff barracks but also he's given troops uh, up near Chatham Dockyard, Royal Navy Dockyard and they take them and they start to kind of do some loose drill, well actually sorry this is, he's actually done that already uh, um, in uh, uh, 1790s, he's done some loose drill uh, with them in Chatham Mm -hmm. and he takes what he's uh, learned there uh, which involves a lot of German soldiers And he starts to use that and his ideas and his drill to write um a kind of a pamphlet a drill manual at shorncliffe and this starts to become the basis of british light infantry uh, maneuver which is interesting because you'll see it in basic training today it breaks down into pairs fire maneuver that's one person firing whilst the other one moves forwards and that level of breaking it down, I don't know if we've covered this in previous podcasts, but the, the British regiment system is very much around a battalion and it really doesn't break down much beyond company level. So right. these, these are captains commanding, about in, in, in theory, about 100 men.
0: Right. You're now breaking it
1: down to not only the sergeants having a lot of commands and junior officers, but then individuals who hold no rank, making very quick decisions and being Uh, using their initiative to come back to uh, to orders and spreading out a lot further from the main part of command.
0: Right. And I think that uniformity is important, especially if let's say you're forming square and you're being charged by Mm -hmm. French cavalry. You know, you got to have a lot
1: of faith in the guy next to you. You've got to have a lot of faith and you've got to know that, say, you're, yeah, Form your Square is a great example. If you're spread out in pairs, far maneuver all through the woods and you start to hear they use trumpets and whistles uh, more than drums, and you start to hear that whistle blow to rally, you've got to know that actually you're doing things like shouting, going, get back, get back. And if you don't shout because you head down, running back, then actually you're going to leave your your next friend's alone and they might you know effectively get cut down by french cavalry right so it, it relies upon people next to you uh, it relies upon a level of initiative that soldiers at the time weren't widely using it mm. had happened over in america and then if you follow the the line of training it'd been lost it'd been lost for quite a long time and hadn't mm-hmm. really come back there was a little bit in the light companies of each regiment but even that has really being dubbed. And um, there's a lot said about it for what lessons were learned in America and brought over, where not many have been championing it in the intervening years. So it's quite interesting that more was in America and would have seen some of that training.
0: Yeah. And I think the also the intriguing part is it goes beyond the physical part of training and focuses on the mental and spiritual side of mm-hmm. becoming a soldier. And around the same time, you know, Napoleon had that camp of Boulogne where he's training for two years, his men, you know, really honing his instrument, kind of like Moore was doing uh, in Britain.
1: Yes. Yeah, it's it takes a lot but to kind of trust these units. They are going beyond just the drilling and the, I mean, do not get me wrong, I think to stand in a line and receive cavalry and receive cannon fire, and whilst the guy next to you is blown apart by cannonballs, you just step into his gap. That's a whole different type of training and bravery, which, you know, I don't think I'd have. Yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, I can actually, I can identify far more the light infantry who are running around. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's very physical uh, and it involves something cutting edge. Uh, Certainly when they started to form the Experimental Corps of Riflemen, which became the 95th Rifles, they were asking for NCOs to come from other units and they specifically didn't want them to send oh, send us your two worst corporals. You know, they wanted to have the best that was available and they were working alongside, like I said earlier, uh, there were German units that the British uh, Armed Forces had as emigres units, so foreign troops that had come across. The Germans had really uh, championed this in the intervening years. We had some really small German units that had some fantastic commanders who had written some other pamphlets, largely in German, Mm -hmm. which is why we don't remember them as well. uh, And some Hessian troops (laughs) and they'd, uh, we're we're not very good with our languages, uh, but they'd actually kept this kind of lineage of uh, light infantry alive. The the famous German Jaegers, the, the hunters, yeah and what moore's doing is taking some of that take and they were based and funny enough in the south of england as well he's taking some of the german stuff he's taking some of the stuff he's seen in america and he's taking the opportunity to be in the south of england with his own brigade and kind of bringing it all together so he's sometimes known as the father of uh, british light infantry i would say he's more of kind of like the cook that brings all the ingredients together (laughs) but it brings them
0: together he does and uh Jumping ahead, um, in 1805, he's promoted to lieutenant general, and then three years later, he's dispatched to Spain and Portugal to fight Napoleon, but I'd like to give us some context on why he's sent and why Wellington is sent home. Do you want to talk about that first?
1: Yes. So uh, if we, we jump ahead to then, uh, he's, he's now Sir John Moore. Right. Uh, he's been knighted and he's been promoted. So uh, what's happened is Wellesley's gone out there with his force, which was meant to go to... South America, which is mm. by the by, uh, and he's had his uh, victory at Relisa. Yep, he goes on the attack, and then he has to defend uh, the ridge at Vimero. Mm-hmm. So after the Battle of Vimero, uh, he's relieved, and then his commander is relieved, and all right. three of them sign the Treaty of Cintra, the Convention of Sintra, and they send the French army home not only with their banners, not only with their weapons, but with their loot. <laughs> right. and to add insult to injury, they ensure the French loot is taken out of the Portuguese ports. Literally, can you imagine someone comes in and steals your family silver, and then you see them marching past you the next day with the British helping them out <laughs> onto Royal Navy ships? It was no. a terrible, terrible no. uh, convention to sign. No. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm just trying to think of the insult to injury. If somebody walks into your house, takes your television, yep. uh, the next day walks past the high street, and the policeman says, "Yes, well, you know, he's got he's got to stay in execution. He's uh, he's going to take it." Now. Oh, <laughs> you'd be deeply offended. You I'd be very offended. upset. Yeah. Um, exactly. And so, no, no surprise. Uh, Wellington, uh, Dalrymple, uh, and the commanders—they're brought home. Uh, they're they're kind of court of inquiry. And uh, they're all exonerated, which is really surprising. Uh, but only Wellington, uh, Wellesley as he was then, goes on to hold future command and he, he comes back. And that's mm-hmm. the Porto campaign. And we'll, we've covered that. Uh, but <laughs> I digress the Porto campaign. Girl. My favorite campaign. Um, but so what happens in the intervening time is uh, Moore sent out there. Uh, and more sent out there uh, because he is quite popular with the army at you know, horse guards. Mm-hmm. So he's got those eyes of saying earlier of the right people. And uh, he's sent to take over. Now, what's quite interesting is actually there were letters flying around saying that they didn't expect him uh, to actually last a full year. They were probably going to relieve him uh, before that's out. But he doesn't get much chance. He brings his officers together. And if I can, I'll just do a quick quote. We, he was actually really, really sure. popular with his officers. Yeah. So uh, one uh, noted quote in Sir John Moore's character, we have a model for everything that marks the obedient soldier, the preserving, firm, and skillful general, the inflexible and the real patriot who was well sacrificed, all for personal feelings for what his country's will, the truly virtuous and honorable man, the high-minded, finished and accomplished gentleman. End quote.
0: Yeah, he sounds like almost with the inflexibility, he sounds like a combination of all three guys we've talked about earlier, Wellington, Hill and Crawford. Like he has that determination from Crawford but he's also generous like Hill but he's smart like Wellington it sounds like he
1: has all three attributes he seems to have it all, all really going in his favor yeah I'd agree with that to quite yeah. an extent I think he he does and he's he's got victories under his belt he's got campaigns he's not like some of the other generals who appear and disappear you know that have just been there through uh, through favoritism uh he's he's got people's favor, but it seems to have come, you know, he's come up through um, campaigns and he's got both the administration now in uh, building military fortifications in the South of England. He's got, uh, he's got toughing it out in the Caribbean. He's got fighting in Corsica and America. This, Mm -hmm. I think it's quite a well-rounded career.
0: I agree. I agree. Now, unfortunately though, he arrives just as Napoleon's bringing 200,000 men into the peninsula. Um, I, I'm not sure how many men more had with him, but it wasn't 200,000.
1: Uh, it was nowhere near 200,000. <laughs> um, yeah. His army was uh, his army was not badly sized, uh, but it was nowhere near uh, that uh, position at that time. And so, his...
0: so yeah, I think he, he thought. I mean, I, I think intelligence, like we were talking about with uh, Waters finding out about Napoleon's moves. But I think he thought he could get a quick victory against Marshal Soult, I believe, isolated corps. Is that kind of what happened there?
1: Yeah, so he he goes on and crosses the border. He's, he's in Portugal at the time, and uh, he, he's, he goes against Salt and he's effectively almost uh, surrounded. He was going to have Salt on one side and uh, Napoleon's core, um, corps plus, uh, on the other side. And I mentioned it before, but uh, Major John Waters, an exploring intelligence officer buys some intelligence off the Spanish who'd captured some letters. He buys those letters off the Spanish, takes them to more, and it uh, details, I believe, Sult's movements and plans. Mm-hmm. And he and he, ha- he leaves there and then that day that waters brings up to him. Otherwise, he would have been surrounded. Does, and so they start to head north.
0: Does he know he's going to leave back for England immediately? Or does he think he's just going to set up a defensive perimeter at Corona?
1: uh i believe he's he's effectively starting to to go with a rear guard action as in go back to england uh mm-hmm. he doesn't say much chance now he's going to have to evacuate if he couldn't get to portugal he's going to have to get to spain uh, off spain sorry and uh, that that way he's got his back to the sea with not much chance because napoleon could have brought his army uh to bear as well uh, and this is where Napoleon goes back.
0: Yeah, no, I, I know uh, Napoleon leaves the pursuit to Soult, but it's we we talked about in the last episode. It's in the dead of winter over mountains. It's just an awful
1: pursuit. Yeah, I mean, you covered this, but I've got to cover it again. When you say that these the, this, this is this is Spanish winter, so this is completely opposite to. The summer, where everyone thinks of the beaches and the drinks and the, mm. the sangria, this <laughs> this is deep snow. This is horrible mountains. It's right. really mountainous in the north of Spain. It's a reason that uh, typically everyone goes on the holiday to like the, the south and the west. Um, this this is really deep snow, very mountainous, very difficult. Yeah, soldiers then carried you know at least fifty kilos on their back. They got the whole world on their in their pack, one spare set of clothes and some food, and they. The, the equipment's not made for comfort, it's thin leather straps. Yeah. And they and they are turning hiking in woolen clothes with leather single, you know, skin shoes on. Yeah. And and their shoes, they're not hiking boots, they're not waterproof jackets. And their hat's a felt hat that is the most uncomfortable thing. Right. And they're slogging, some of them with their wives behind them, I mentioned before, some of the wives having giving up birth by the side of the road, picking up the baby on one side and almost like picking up their husband by the scoff of the neck because he's so exhausted with the other hand yeah and they' they're turning away they're fighting rearguard actions um, and yeah and, and one wrong step can send
0: you sliding down a, a ravine and you're done I, I read um even Napoleon when he was still in the pursuit, he had to lock arms with Marshal lan and I think Dirac just to get over the mountain,
1: yeah there's massive ravine, so I think they start to I have to like throw some of the the pay chests down there and um uh, yeah, it's and the cavalry kind of turn and do some fantastic uh, rearguard actions like Sahagun, and uh, that's General Padgett, who becomes later Uxbridge of Waterloo fame. And mm-hmm. uh, we've mentioned before, the light, the light troops that kind of hold the rearguard action together under under Crawford, but these are men that actually more would have trained up uh, only a few years previously as well.
0: Right. So he epically retreats to Kroona to escape Napoleon's clutches and offers up a stiff rear guard with Black Bob Crawford, like we talked in the last episode. I have two questions for you, and you kind of mentioned it earlier, you know, was the Battle of Corona a strategic withdrawal for the British? So in sense, a victory for the British, or was it a victory for the French in that they ejected the British from the peninsula?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> so um, the, the battle... I'm going to be controversial here. The battle was a British okay. victory. Okay. Um, because so what happened is they turned up to the city. Um, I believe there's somewhere in the region of two Royal Navy vessels and about fifty um, civilian vessels, or you know, large trading ships mm. that were coming over to evacuate. And the troops needed um, a good like two days to evacuate onto those ships. And uh, what happens is they don't have that. These men then turn around outside the city gates and then fight outwards um towards salt who wasn't really expecting it he was expecting to to close in and capture them and then fire on the ships if they were leaving Uh, but this doesn't happen it leads with some some big attacks uh especially famous of some like highland charges Mm over the streets and up and in and they i would say that that the battle of corona is a british victory okay at the end of the day, the French withdraw back, and they are able to complete their objective, which is to get onto those ships. Right. However, the campaign itself was a withdrawing one, uh, where obviously they they lose they lose the overall campaign by they are withdrawing strategically from uh, from Spain. Absolutely, but yeah. the actual the Battle of Corona is a victory in itself, both tactically and strategically, because they do achieve that aim. Right. Of, um, withdrawing. And the French fail to prevent their objectives to be met. Their French objective is not to, you know, re- eject the army from Spain. It is right. to capture and defeat it. And neither of those things happen. Right. It's almost like a Dunkirk moment in uh, World War II. Yeah. You don't, you don't win a war by evacuating, as kind of, you know, Churchill said, but actually right. you, you can still win the wider war by coming back. And that's then what happens with the Porto campaign. And more... Achieves this, the uh, time is bought. I, I think I mentioned it before, but you know, horrible things happen, like all the you nearly know, all the horses have to be shot in the streets, and it's just yeah. absolutely upsetting. Yeah. But the troops do get out, and they do have full fighting forces, which are back within, well, they're, they're back within three months. Some of them.
0: Well, sadly, though, what happens but, to our protagonist?
1: <laughs> well, so Moore himself is not going to be coming back. He's uh, he's leaving the troops outside. And uh, he's struck in uh, and uh, the the report is that he's struck in the left breast and shoulder by a cannon shot, which breaks his ribs, his arm and his shoulder, his hold of his left side and then his lungs. Mm. Uh, He's actually uh, a a bit of a kind of uh, Nelson moment here that he's led away. And he is told as he's dying that uh, victory has been achieved that day. Mm -hmm. And there's a
0: great quote he has right here, which I love, Uh, quote. I always wish to die this way. I hope the people of England will be satisfied. I hope my country will do me justice, end quote. So I think he's happy to die on the battlefield. Obviously, he's the son of a doctor, so he knows if a wound is mortal or not.
1: Yeah, uh, I think he's, there's no coming back. It sounds like most of his left-hand side is kind of almost gone or just pulp to the... Yeah, it's it's yeah. awful wound. Yeah, uh, But he, he manages to to gather people around him and, and talk to them as he's dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, he's, he's by this point, he's a bit of a soldier's soldier. And uh, I think it's it gives him this reputation uh, of you know, dying in, in the moment of victory. Yeah. Uh, which is what, what, not what he would have wanted. But um, what more can you achieve as a general uh, with victory as well, rather than dying in kind of ignominy?
0: Right. Right. And I know his French adversaries respected him. Uh, Marshal Soult erected a memorial to his defeated enemy. I think is it still there today? The the
1: the monument. Yeah, there is still a monument. It's sadly not a part of the world I've uh, able to get to because it is in northern Spain, rather than where the, lots of the rest of the battlefields are kind of clumped by the Portuguese border. Yeah. But um, yeah, I've seen lots of images of it, and it, uh, memorials are held there every year, which is really nice, and it's uh, really well kept. So that's that's kind of all I like to hear from those kind of memorials. It's in um, it's in quite a leafy um, kind of almost orchard in the in the city uh, in mm. some in some gardens. Uh, so it, it looks like a nice, a nice part is his tomb memorial and he's buried there. So he's just inside the walls and they, they put him in a shroud and uh, and bury him. Yeah. Yeah. Two we
0: want about Marshall Sword, That was a nice gesture. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a really
1: nice gesture. And yeah. uh, if, uh, if people look up or I will always try to, to tweet with the, um, with the information as well, when it goes out, there's a very famous uh, painting of his burial, and mm-hmm. uh, it goes with a poem: "Um, not a drum was heard, not a funeral note, as his corpse to the rampart we hurried. Not a soldier discharged his farewell shot over the grave where a hero was buried." It's it's moving.
0: It's yeah, I just it is touching and moving, and I, I think that's phenomenal. With all that said. He's not the most well-known general in the peninsula. Obviously, that'd be Wellington. But what do you think Sir John Moore's legacy is?
1: He's not one of the best known in the peninsula. But that comes with a caveat that I would actually say that for those who've dabbled in a bit of military history, um, people have heard of him. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sir John Moore is known. There are places in the UK, a few of them named after him. He's got a few memorials. Uh, London, Scotland, and down what I say near the Royal Military Canal, uh, Shawncliffe Barracks has had did used to have these, uh, Sir John Moore Barracks, uh, where it was at home of the Home Light Infantry, and um, over near Winchester as well. So mm-hmm. the the, Brit- the British Army certainly uh, rem- uh, remembers him. Mm-hmm. That that lines from his poem uh, is is once known, and uh, the the painting as well is relatively famous. And I think people have kind of got the idea that. He was a famous general who died. Now, it comes with that slight caveat that his campaign to Corunna, the opening stages, was really poorly thought out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, if he, without doubt, if he, you know, got back to England, he too would have been facing a course of inquiry mm-hmm. as to, you know, he effectively, apart from fighting at Corunna, didn't really fight a major action, but lost his army to be evacuated, sick, tired, hungry. Right. Right. So but it's I think difficult.
0: yeah, but I think also the the systemization or uniformity of his training methods I think were beneficial to the army at that time.
1: Absolutely, yeah that that's something um, that comes on as a legacy uh, mm. the the legacy of light infantry doctrine really um, puts some British troops on the map. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the big advantages that I think the British army's got in the peninsular war as they've got those light infantry troops we talked about it in crawford mm-hmm. um and uh, they, that you can draw a lineage from the training in sean Cliff to british army uh, very much modern uh, today and the way that we fight uh, however uh, it's often said that more it was more that did it it was crawford that did it in truth it, there's a whole you know kind of a whole Book of men who helped that training, many of which uh, are very junior officers, and many of which were Germans. And Amor is actually the one that we hold up as kind of being the father of the light infantry, and Crawford being the one to kind of take them to war. But there's lots of other people uh, in that mix. So I think it's kind of his legacy sometimes for the light infantry might be too generous. Yeah. Uh, however, the light infantry is so important that he really does need his dues as well. So. It's it's a difficult one when you come to a man's legacy without having obviously having having met him, uh, but he he seems to be quite fondly remembered. And certainly when I was reading that quote out earlier, and that that is not the only one. His men seem to have really respected him at the time.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and tragic, both him and Crawford didn't get to see the the full dividends when Napoleon was finally defeated in 1815 of their training of these men for you know like you said years before.
1: Right, and it would have been very interesting to see what would have happened with the uh, Peninsular War had these men, you know, survived. Would yep. Moore have been pushed aside for Wellesley coming back? Uh, mm-hmm. is, a, is a big what if. And if if so, and he'd served under Wellesley, you know, what kind of contributions would he have made to the later peninsula War and arguably uh, Waterloo? It would have been uh, interesting. I certainly think Moore was very talented. It was kind of his downfall that he made a bad decision to venture into, into Spain when he did. Right.
0: Yeah, very interesting stuff about Sir John Moore. Uh, intriguing figure and, and really contributed a lot to the British Army and the defeat of Napoleon, don't you think?
1: I do. And even though it's strange to say that he you know, contributed with a, a possible defeat of the campaign, the, the victory of actually bringing that many men back to uh, Britain, who, many of whom then went on to either go and serve in other subsequent campaigns, uh, certainly was a uh, legacy that uh, he hopefully he would have been, he would have been proud of. And it sounds like he, he was, as he was kind of, uh, as he was dying, he, he realized what he'd actually managed to achieve. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's an interesting character Sir so John Moore and, uh, he achieved a lot and, uh, you know, died relatively young. Indeed. Indeed. Well, thank you for
0: that, Marcus. I appreciate your time as always, uh, to my listeners, please check out Duke of to learn more about Marcus and his upcoming activities. And, uh, thank you, my friend, for
1: being on the show again. Thank you. As always, I'm uh, really honored to be here and uh, enjoy talking to you. Thank you.